Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Bethany Francois, a specialist eating disorder dietitian. Beth joins me today to discuss the role of a dietitian in binge eating disorder and bulimia nervosa recovery and the science behind behaviours associated with these, eat- with these eating disorders. Hello Beth. Hi Hannah, hello. How are you? I'm good thanks, how are you? Good, yeah I'm not bad thank you. I'm, I feel really tired. I've had another busy weekend and I promised myself this one after Christmas would be like a wind down and it's not happened. <laughs> <laughs> never never quite works out like that. Does no it? no but oh well. Um, so I'm super excited to talk to you today. I think the topic that we're going to be talking about is one that um, I mean I think we've discussed this already. There's kind of no there's very little resource out there. So I think this episode will be really beneficial for people. Um, so kind of, you know, just to, to lay the scenes for everyone today, we're going to be talking about bulimia nervosa and binge eating disorder. And I guess um, partially kind of the role of a dietitian in terms of recovery, but also maybe some science behind the behaviours and the effects and sort of how recovery can happen. So I guess to start with, do you want to maybe if people are listening not sure maybe what the behaviors might be kind of talk about the behaviors that might be associated with binge eating disorder and bulimia um, and how that might differ to anorexia because I think often people know a bit more about anorexia yeah sure that's a good place to start um so bulimia nervosa is kind of typically um thought about in the context of um periods of binge eating so that might feel like um, eating large amounts of food in a small period of time and um, but that can we'll I'll talk about this a bit later I think as well but that can look quite different for individuals um, so it may it may be experienced as a loss of control around food um, whereas with other individuals it may on top of that also be a large amount of food so it does vary between individuals um, and then following that will be um, a period of kind of compensatory behaviors um, in attempt to to in a way get rid of that food and um, so okay. often people will assume that um, the only behavior we talk about with that is purging and self-induced mm-hmm. vomiting um, but there's also kind of many other behaviors so for some individuals it might be um, over exercising um, it might be laxative abuse it might be diuretic abuse um, so there are more compensation behaviors and I think people tend mm-hmm. to realize um, and then with binge eating disorder is kind of categorized by, by those binge eating episodes without periods of compensatory behaviors afterwards. Right. So that's kind of how they um, differ. Um, really important as well to, to highlight that you can also kind of get anorexia nervosa um, purging subtype. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not the same as bulimia nervosa. And that's typically um, because it, the purging doesn't necessarily come after binge eating um, in the same way that um, it would in bulimia nervosa but there is quite a lot of overlap between diagnoses generally but that's kind of an overview um, okay. of kind of symptoms yeah so how would you when you're diagnosing somebody what would be kind of like the criteria to determine whether you're you would diagnose them with bulimia or with anorexia is it just the binging beforehand or is there anything else that 
you would look um, at? So there, there are other things as well. And I, I mean, one of them that I, I'm not particularly a fan of, and I think there's a lot of issues with the way that we diagnose eating disorders is that, um, that somebody's weight would be considered as well um, as to whether they would be diagnosed with anorexia purging type um, or bulimia. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that is some, I don't necessarily believe that that is correct, but that is something that is considered at the moment. Um, and yeah, so definitely the, if, if you're purging without the binging episodes, um, it's more likely to be anorexia nervosa purging subtype, particularly if there are, um, it's quite a significant amount of restriction going on in association with that as well. Okay. Okay. And, and another question I have is, these are kind of just questions that are coming into my brain. Um, but I guess if somebody um, had anorexia, let's say, and they, well, they were diagnosed with anorexia, but they also engaged in excessive exercise, but they were restricting, would that be anorexia, like the restrictive subtype, or would that be the purging subtype? In my experience, I think most people who kind of fit fit those behavior patterns are more likely to be diagnosed with restrictive subtype um, and then it would be highlighted within their diagnosis that they suffer with compulsive exercise right. okay but again I don't know I don't particularly know why that is because yeah it, in bulimia it would be seen as a compensatory behavior and therefore a way of purging so yeah yeah it's complicated isn't it like I guess as well it's probably on like a case-by-case basis like you would look at the the whole story like rather than just me nailing you down now like what would this be what would this be um but okay so thanks so much for kind of explaining that and I think that gives quite a nice picture for us to start with um but as a dietitian kind of what does your role involve um, when you kind of meet with somebody that's bulimia, bulimic or has binge eating disorder? Um, I think so. One of the things that we would be looking at is kind of understanding the pattern of behaviours. Um, so, for example, we might be trying to look at specific triggers. And so often individuals will have specific trigger foods. Mm. Um, so we'd be looking at those. We'd be looking at if there's particular times in the day that somebody's likely to engage in behaviours. Um, one of the main things that we would talk about kind of straight away would be the first thing that I'd be mentioning is this idea of regular and consistent eating. Um, I don't think I've really ever met an individual diagnosed with either bulimia or binge eating disorder who has been eating regular and consistent meals. Um, and it's often one of the, it's a very practical thing to tackle. Um, so it's often one of the first things that we'd approach, um, because, and this is not to say at all that binge eating is solely triggered by not eating enough or periods of restriction. Um, It's often much, much more complicated than that. But if you're not eating enough on top of the other reasons, the emotional reasons as to why you might be binge eating, you're really setting yourself up to fail because you're now Mm -hmm. trying to fight the physiological responses of hunger and because you're literally not eating enough. Um, so regular eating and kind of consistent meals and looking at kind of three meals and three snacks eating every two to three hours would be one of the first first things I'd be mentioning to um, individuals Um, another thing that we often focus on is this idea of like a subjective or an objective binge um, because often people may say oh um, I've been binging or I binged yesterday 
And that can look very, very different to individuals. So unless you ask specifically, which can feel quite difficult for people when you're asking them to recall what they may have eaten in a binge. Um, but for example, if somebody's got restricted tendencies, their idea of what a binge is may be kind of breaking their rules that they have around eating. Mm. So it may not actually be a large amount of food to to another person but for them and the rules that they follow around food or the foods that they try to exclude their their brain automatically goes to that was a binge um so really important to try and actually find out what what somebody is meaning by the idea of a binge mm, yeah absolutely I think that's really interesting I think um that was always something that kind of confused me or not confused me but I was never quite sure about it at uni because I remember um them saying at uni like oh a binge would be you know like quite a high calorific food um but then you know then I've met individuals that would binge on maybe like salads and vegetables and stuff like that so would you still kind of say that that is a binge or is that like like you just said is that more of a subjective binge yeah I think it's the reason I think it's important to kind of be able to label it as a binge, um, but differentiate the two is because for the individual, if you're experiencing a feeling of a loss of control around food or not really recalling, or, you know, often people will talk about not remembering being in the kitchen and it all feeling like a blur. And, and it's important that, that that feels valid for the individual, even if the amount of food that they ate wouldn't be considered a large amount of food, because mm. um, it's, more, it's more about the feelings that somebody is experiencing at that time rather than just the food itself yeah. in, when it comes to any part of an eating disorder. But um, um, yeah, I think it's important to, to acknowledge that for the individual, that that's how it feels irrespective of what they've eaten. Yeah, I think that's such a nice point that you've raised there. It's almost, I guess, like if you said to somebody, you know, I'm struggling with this and, you know, I found this really challenging. I don't want to say the word validation because you kind of, you it's, I don't think it is validation but it's almost that like seeing that yeah this is a struggle for you actually and like just you know you don't have to do it for certain things like if you're feeling a certain way then you deserve the help um so I guess with with binging what you're saying is kind of trying to get those like regular eating patterns um in place as like the first step what would that be if somebody was purging what would kind of be the first step in their treatment yeah so often um with purging, it can feel quite difficult for individuals because it can become very like black and white. Um, so they try really, really hard not to engage in the behavior if they're kind of committing to treatment. Um, and then it's inevitable, and I say this to everybody, that there is no way you're gonna go to your first dietetic session or your first um, psychology session and then not purge from there on out. It's just not gonna happen. Um, and it sounds really defeatist saying that, but it's because individuals often put so much pressure on themselves. And then it becomes so black and white that once they slip up, it's like, I've thrown everything away. There's no point trying, I can't do it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's really important to acknowledge that it's not gonna be completely straightforward and lapse free from this yeah. point out. Um, again, it's about, I think, looking at the individual and trying to find out what their purging patterns are. So are there specific times of day? Um, obviously, what is their actual purging behavior? And sometimes at the beginning, it can kind of be about reducing the time spent engaging the behavior. Um, kind of, so we might start with putting like a timer on for two minutes 
and letting two minutes go and trying to sit with the feelings and then after two minutes knowing that if you're still having the urges then okay we're gonna you can engage in the behavior mm. so sometimes it's it, it's about taking super super small steps and then if we've done that let's try adding a minute and the reason that we we focus on time is because that in, intense period where you feel really strong urges to engage in a behavior and you can't control them it's not possible for your body to stay in that heightened period of anxiety for a really long time it's just physically not possible um so being able to practice sitting with it for longer periods of time will enable you to practice until you get to a point where actually the urges is by the time you've the time has run out the urge has kind of gone and you don't feel like you need to engage in the behavior um so other things might also be thinking about practical strategies so um making sure that you're in a room with other people after meals um, so that there are other people to hold you accountable and you're not kind of putting it all on yourself if that's possible that can feel quite helpful um, or thinking about distraction and like specific activities to engage in kind of after meal times um, having like a toolbox of things that the individual can go to um, so that they can kind of ride out the wave I guess of those intense urges yeah I think that's that sounds brilliant and I think it's so interesting what you were saying about sort of that um that period of heightened anxiety because I think often like you know when you're in that that state of that anxiety you think this is never going to go away like and the only way out of this is for me to do this specific behavior that I've kind of relied on for however long and that's always been my answer um so I suppose it's almost like kind of negative reinforcement in that you know that's my way out and that's what I do and you need to kind of break that sort of cycle um and that kind of really nicely leads me on to um I saw some resources that you did about like the binge purge and the binge restrict cycle um and I was wondering maybe if you could kind of talk us through those cycles as to I guess the the process of the cycle um and the way that we can like interject at each point to maybe, you know, at any point to sort of soothe the feelings. Yeah, definitely. I find um, lots of people I've worked with find it really helpful to think about it in a cycle. Um, I guess a good place to start since we kind of mentioned regular eating at the beginning, um, it, might not, it might not actually start with restriction because what can happen is if somebody is binging, um, it may feel like the binging comes first and in response to the binging, they then restrict, but I have to start somewhere. So I'll start that kind of restricting. <laughs> um, so the idea of that is kind of not just necessarily eating less than your body needs, but it might be avoiding certain foods. So this is really important because um, often people say, well, I can't be restricting my weight stable. Um, I'm eating enough to kind of maintain my body weight, but actually what are you eating? Because if you're not eating all food groups, then you're gonna get to the point of the cycle where your body is craving specific foods that you're not allowing yourself to have, irrespective of whether you're eating enough. Um, so a way to kind of break the cycle here would be regular eating, including all food groups and meeting um, energy needs for your body. Um, that kind of goes on to this idea of deprivation, starvation, and having cravings. Um, this is a physiological and emotional response to restriction. Often at this point, people have, ex I guess, emotions around their body having failed them and having a lack of willpower and why can't I control myself around food? This is a normal response to restriction and your body's doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing. Um, so at this point would be thinking about leaning into and responding to hunger signals as a way to kind of break the cycle. Um, 
moving on from that, we kind of get this, this episode of binge eating um, or a loss of control around food. And as I mentioned, this could be subjective or objective. Um, and a way to think about this and, and breaking the cycle here would be identifying specific triggers. Um, so are there types of food, for example, that are likely to trigger a binge um, or are there specific times of the day? Um, most people that I, I work with, um, not all, but, but most will experience um, strong urges at the end of the day. And that's normally in response to having, having restricted throughout the day. Um, and then kind of following on from that, we get this guilt and anxiety. Um, and often that is driven by a fear of weight gain. Um, and, and as that being a kind of consequence of this um, period of a loss of control around food um, and implementing healthy kind of coping strategies here and riding out that wave of emotions um, and, and implementing those delaying tactics would be kind of something here to break the cycle. Um, and, then, and then in bulimia nervosa, not binge eating, you then get an engagement in purging behaviors in an attempt to try to reduce the distress and guilt um, associated with the binging episode. Um, and then delaying that, de delaying that behavior, as I mentioned, would be a way to kind of break the cycle. Um, and then the last bit is this often gets ignored. Um, it's almost once you've got to the point of engaging in the behavior and whether that's binge eating um, or binge eating and purging, it often individuals feel like, well, it's done now. There's nothing I can do now you know I failed but actually that feeling of kind of shame and self low self-worth and frustration is fueled by this idea of not of having failed um, and having a lack of self-compassion and actually being able to implement some self-care and self-compassion in those moments when you feel like that after engaging the behaviors is a way that you can break the cycle um, it doesn't kind of get to purging and then it's all gone out the window and there's nothing you can do um, and then because what then happens is that shame and low self-worth and frustration then leads to restriction. So lots of people will say, I binged last night, so I've woken up this morning feeling really, really bad about it, really frustrated. Um, and so I'm restricting now the next day and then the cycle kind of continues. Um, so that's a bit of an overview of, of the binge, restrict, binge, purge cycle. Yeah. And if, I think it's fascinating how it, it loops back round. Um, one thing that kind of I wanted to ask you as you were talking and you kind of answered it a little bit it was you know if you do get to the point where you go through all those stages and you aren't able to interrupt at any point and you know really trying not to binge and purge and you you know you were saying earlier about how um people put so much pressure on themselves when they go into therapy and expect it to just go mm -hmm. you mentioned about like self-compassion and stuff but how do you think people should sort of talk to themselves or like you know look after themselves after because I can imagine that if you do binge or binge and purge or you know whatever behavior the then anger at yourself you know like oh you've done it again like we're just back in the cycle again how do you think people could change that to actually you know help themselves yeah so I think I mean there's lots of different things so one of them might be um I'm, I'm sucker for journaling. I just think being able to, in those moments, write down what's actually coming up for you is more likely going to be helpful the next time. So you could have a think about, you know, what triggered that? How did I feel? Um, so trying to look at yourself from an understanding point of view rather than a judgment point of view. Um, also, sometimes people will have particular symptoms. So binging and purging are very kind of physical behaviours. Um, and can make people feel unwell. 
Um, so I'd be thinking about what can I do in those moments to make myself feel physically better because being able to treat the symptoms you feel after engaging in those behaviours is showing ourselves some compassion for engaging in them. So do you need a hot water bottle? Um, do you need to have a hot drink? Um, do you need to have a cup of tea? Something like that. Um, then I'd be thinking about, I find affirmations can be quite helpful for individuals. So ideally having some affirmations that you find resonate with you available so that you can kind of reflect on those um, in those moments. Um, and then obviously from like a dietetic mind point, I'm thinking, okay, where are we with our meals? Um, because the most important thing is to try and get back on track with meals and have your next meal as planned can feel super, super difficult. You might need to adjust the time slightly, um, but really important to try and get back on track straight away because that's a, a, a really important way to try and break, break that cycle rather than, you know, I've ruined everything. I'm not gonna kind of eat consistently now for the rest of the day. There's no point sort of thing. Yeah, I think that was a question I was just gonna ask you about the kind of meal planning was, you know, if you do binge or binge and purge, kind of what would be that that recommendation kind of about that? So thank you so much for answering that. And another question that I wanted to ask from kind of the cycle that you just spoke about was um, you were talking about, like, I think at one, I think you said something about like listening to hunger cues or something. And I just wanted to ask about, is that something that takes quite a while? Because I can imagine kind of with the binging or the binging and purging or the different behaviors that those kind of cues, like listening to your hunger or listening to your fullness could be something that would take quite a lot of learning to, because you probably haven't done that if, for so, if you've been engaged in these behaviors for a long time. Yeah, no. Absolutely. It can take a really long time. Um, and I think it can be quite frustrating for people because there's a lot of information out there now about kind of intuitive eating, which is amazing. And but for people who are recovering from an eating disorder to try and respond to hunger and fullness signals is honestly like it, it's impossible. Mm. Um, really, really, really difficult. They don't they don't not only do the actual like the, the hormone changes on mean that you don't actually experience the signals it's like you can't look at them without a biased viewpoint because you've got your eating disorder thoughts on top mm. of that so trying to you might be experiencing hunger but your eating disorder will find a way to manipulate you into convincing you that it's not hunger that it's that you're feeling that it's something else and um, so that's why kind of regular and consistent meals are so important at to start with um, and it can feel frustrating because this does mean at times that you might have to eat you you probably will have to eat when you're not hungry but it's okay mm. um, and there might be points that you have to eat past fullness and that's also okay because your body is going to get full at different points there are kind of physiological things going on um, in terms of your digestion that might feel that you feel fuller um, than, than the average person might um, but kind of trying to stick to a meal plan and regular meals is really, really important um, because you're not going to know what to eat and when to eat um, on your own at that point. Mm. With the, um, you know, if we're looking at like the, the purging behaviours, so like the self-induced vomiting or laxative diuretics, um, that sort of thing, does, would, the, would you like alter a meal plan differently or like you have different methods, I guess, of moving away from those behaviours for each one or is it all kind of, does it all follow a similar path? Um, they would actually be quite different. The, the ones that would be would be 
most if it would be laxative and diuretic use um, because they have to be reduced kind of under medical supervision and very gradually. So for somebody who's been abusing either laxatives or diuretics for you know large quantities for a long period of time is actually really, really dangerous to just stop them overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, and lots of people don't, don't know that, but essentially your body adjusts and gets used to you taking them, which is why you end up having to take more for them to have an impact because right. your body is adjusting to them. Um, so to take those away, all of a sudden um, can be really dangerous. Um, so they would be the two where they would there would be like a gradual reduction plan essentially. Um, whereas with purging, for example, self-induced vomiting, you would ideally stop that straight away. But as we've said, that it's unlikely that that's going to happen. Um, so that they would be, it would be quite different um, for in terms of reducing those behaviours. Yeah. Mm. And, and if you say about like slowly reducing lactives and diuretics, what would your opinion be on exercise? Excessive yeah. exercise. So again, I think it, it really depends on the individual um, because I think for me to sit here and say somebody should just stop it straight away is like re- almost like reading out of a textbook, like yes, yeah. in an ideal situation, but what's the reality of what's going on? Um, I think if somebody's at a physical point where they're physically compromised to the point that exercise is dangerous, then this would be quite different advice. Um, But I often think about how is kind of my advice gonna gonna impact the rest of what's going on for this person. So if somebody stops exercising completely when they've been really relying on that to, I guess there's permission to eat um, essentially, and they're going to completely stop exercising and that's going to impact what they're eating to a point of being dangerous. And you've kind of got to look at what the way up the risks and balance those a little bit. Um, so it might be for some, for somebody that we think about having very clear like time barriers. So often people who struggle with exercise will just have an open-ended amount of time to exercise. So it might be thinking about planning something straight after a period of exercise so that it has to stop then. Um, it might be about, engaging in exercise with other people um, so that we're not on our own and just doing really high intense exercise, for example. Um, it might be thinking about sometimes changing environment. So if somebody's used to going to a specific environment, for example, I don't know, like a specific gym, and they associate that with their eating disorder behaviors, and it might be thinking about, can we change that environment mm-hmm. and kind of start somewhere new? Um, sometimes again it depends on the individuals but specific classes so there's a start and an end point you don't necessarily have control over the intensity and um, because you're doing kind of what's been set so that can feel quite helpful for people um, so yeah I think it's more more around individual and thinking about yeah. with the individual what would be helpful for them definitely I, I think I, I couldn't agree more and I really liked at the start you know you said about it, it completely depends on the person and if they're in a situation where you know they're really physically unwell and exercising is going to be dangerous then you know then the exercise should stop but I think also from from my point of view exercise is something that kind of you know even going for a walk it's kind of something that you know you do daily so as well as kind of through recovery developing a new relationship with food that we focus on quite heavily in eating disorder recovery I think there needs to be more of kind of developing your relationship with exercise as well because I think often people are told you know just stop 
which might be the right might feel right like the right thing to do but then ultimately when they then start again they have no idea of how to balance that relationship because all they've ever known is excessive yeah definitely so so true I think I think generally kind of in eating disorder treatment we are quite quick to just be like no you're not either physically or mentally in, in this space to be doing that but it it is unrealistic um and that and at some point the individual is going to engage in exercise, whether that's formal exercise, whether it's literally just going for a walk um, mm-hmm. and they need to be able to learn how to do that without it becoming part of their eating disorder um, or being seen as a compensatory behaviour. So I do, I definitely, definitely think it's important to kind of, to address that in treatment for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, like you said, I think it's really important, especially, I think, you know in in an eating sort of often exercise can be something that's like you said a compensatory behavior or a punishment and it's almost being able to to rewire and relearn that that you know going for a walk with your family can actually be a really nice experience and it doesn't have to be something that's like eating disorder driven um and just before we kind of move on because I wanted to talk about like the medical and physical consequences of some of the behaviors are there any other behaviors that you might work with um with either somebody with bulimia or binge eating disorder that we haven't discussed that you think might be um I think I mean in in terms of kind of um other behaviors in bulimia there might be kind of abusing diet pills um that might be another one on top of kind of laxatives and diuretics um trying to think I think they're the main ones I can think of and then, I mean, there may be, there may be other, there may be others that maybe I just haven't, you know, mm. seen personally in my own practice. Um, so if anybody's listening and they, they are engaging in other forms of behaviours as part of their eating disorder, then this is by no means like exhaustive, you know, mm. that it's just kind of what I've, what I've experienced as a dietitian. Sure. And just one thing I wanted to ask you about um, when I was having a bit of a read of about kind of purging and things like that was, would you be able to explain to the listeners? Um, Cause I also read about purging disorder. And I think that's another one obviously that might be relevant to this podcast. So just if people have kind of seen that and might be wondering what that is, a, what that, you know, what that's categorized as. Yeah. So purging disorder is essentially is, is purging behaviors in the absence of binging. Um, And that, and the main difference between that and anorexia nervosa purging subtype is there's more likely to be um, significant restriction in anorexia nervosa purging subtype. Um, And somebody who who is diagnosed in purging disorder is more likely to be um, at a normal weight than not underweight. Again, I hate bringing weight into diagnosis. I think it's really really outdated and needs to be changed um but that will be one of the differences between those diagnoses so essentially purging disorder is um engaging in purging behaviors in the absence of binge eating episodes okay perfect thank you i'm just going to pick up what you said because i i agree that i think it is outdated with regards to the weight but i guess my i guess my question always is you know is obviously with anorexia there's a certain BMI and if you're above that then it's atypical anorexia and if you're below that then it's anorexia nervosa and 
I don't agree kind of with that with that being the only thing that kind of separates them however and as I'm saying this I'm I'm even like oh but you know that's not true I I used to think that you know the anorexia nervosa because of the lower BMI people might be um, more physically compromised and therefore need more medical support but I've met several people that have had atypical anorexia and have been physically compromised and have needed that support so I don't really know what my question now is but I guess do you think there needs to be that kind of distinction between the two and if you do what would it be? I almost think that like in terms of distinguishing between the two that definitely like of course in the same way that any medical conditions might be kind of differentiated um but I think that that can be done past the point of diagnosis so I feel like two people could be diagnosed both with anorexia nervosa and at the point of treatment and being treated it would obviously be acknowledged by the medical team that one individual may be more severely physically compromised and need more input in that sense. But in terms of them being diagnosed with the same disorder, I feel like that can, that could still be the case. If that, does that make sense? Yeah. I, I guess like, yeah, I think that's a really good point that you've made as though you know, obviously they should be having medical checks throughout. So that will come up and not everybody that's diagnosed with anorexia will be, you know, severely medically compromised. Not everybody with atypical anorexia. So I guess that's a really good point in that we should be doing those checks throughout regardless. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, and then you might decide, okay, well, this person needs to have um, their blood pressure monitored twice a week. And this person needs like that. I think you can have that different, Mm -hmm. like you can look at someone's treatment and it can be different, even if they've got the same diagnosis. I almost think it's like a a bit of a lazy way to kind of, Mm. um, yeah. And I think it, I think there's more kind of political and in terms of funding and who has access to treatment and has, there's bigger reasons as to why I think diagnosis works in the way that it does at the moment. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think as well, if you didn't have maybe the anorexia and the atypical anorexia, then, you know, if everybody got the same checks, like you've just said, I think then people would get the treatment that is actually more beneficial to them because of the checks that they're getting. Um, So maybe overall, it actually would equal out in terms of the funding, people would just kind of be getting the treatment that they need. But I mean, that's not unfortunately for us to decide but I think we're both on the same page as to how we're feeling um I did have one more question actually just before we go on to the medical and physical consequences I feel like I've been all over the place I'm so tired (laughs) questions keep popping into my head um in terms of binge eating disorder is it always no I think you said that it wasn't always restriction I guess I was just thinking about um and I don't know if this is the the correct term but I guess like emotional eating is that you know could somebody have binge eating disorder and that be caused by the emotional eating not necessarily restriction yeah definitely I think 100% um some individuals their binge eating won't be you know a response to kind of physical hunger really at all um and it may may purely be coming from an emotional an emotional point of view Um, And I think even with those individuals, the regular eating is really important because then it takes away 
it takes away everything else and you can see the behavior just for what it is. Um, so it helps to kind of highlight patterns. Um, so if you are regularly eating and eating enough and we're binging, now we can really have a look and see what's going on. Um, and I think that it's really important for people to be seeking psychological support. support. Um, often, particularly with binge eating, I think because there's this idea of it being, um, you know, like a lack of control and there's a lot of shame around it, that it's sometimes seen not necessarily just by clinicians, but as the individuals themselves as a food problem. Mm -hmm. um, and then so people feel more comfortable kind of seeking help from a dietitian. And I will often, you know, have an, I have an assessment with somebody and, and they'll say, and I'll ask, are you, are you seeing a psychologist? Like, are you doing therapy? And they'll kind of be like, oh, no, I'm not, I haven't really thought about it. And I'm like very, very clear that you, you really need to be working with a therapist to challenge binge eating disorder because it's not a food problem. Mm. It's a psychological illness. Um, and, and that can feel quite difficult for people sometimes. I think it can be a bit of a shock because um, not just themselves, but society is very much tries to imply that binge eating behaviours are because we're not eating the right foods or et cetera. And it make it very much being a food problem rather than like a psychological illness. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. And I think really nice of you to, you know, be honest and, and say, you know, you'd always recommend for someone to see a psychologist. And that's something that I always try and kind of, whenever I'm having a conversation with people about an eating disorder, you know, if it's somebody that doesn't know maybe as as much as you know we might like a normal person in society to know is that it's not actually like the food that's the problem it's 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 the other stuff and the food is sort of the outlet of you know this is how I'm feeling and I'm going to use food to sort of you know either either numb that or to voice it or whatever um so yeah I think I think that's brilliant and you know I think if somebody is looking for support then that would be such great advice for them in that they should definitely look for a dietitian and yeah, a psychologist or psychotherapist so thank you for that um so getting on to the medical and physical consequences um I just wanted to say before we start this, you know, if anybody feels uncomfortable listening to this, then I just wanted to say that that's what we're going to start talking about now, because I know sometimes this can be difficult for people to hear. Um, but if we start with kind of self-induced vomiting, what what are the consequences that come to your mind when when you think about that? Yeah, so one of, the, I mean, the first thing that comes up that will often be picked up on by medical professionals is um, deranged electrolytes. So that will be things like... Um, potassium particularly um and in response to kind of dehydration there'll be kind of other um blood results that we'll be looking at um so often people who are engaging in self-induced vomiting will be recommended to have um frequent blood monitoring and um, to keep an eye on those things um, and they can be really quite dangerous because if your electrolytes get to the point of being um kind of really out of range it can cause changes in heart function um so cardiac arrhythmias so that's kind of it, people might talk about um like heart palpitations so that's how it might feel like to the actual person so almost kind of changes in heart rhythm um and that's in response to somebody's electrolytes being out of range particularly potassium um so dehydration obviously you're getting you're getting rid of quite a lot of fluid mm -hmm. um Dental damage um, is another one. Um, so it's actually surprising. Um, I think often actually dentists are taught 
to look out for specific um, signs when they're doing dental checkups. Wow. Um, and I have known people who have been picked up initially at the dentist um, and then it's, it's come to light that they've been um, vomiting. Um, so essentially kind of acid erosion to your um, like enamel in your teeth. Um, and then in terms of your esophagus, so that's the kind of tube that connects your, your mouth to your stomach, basically. Um, so if somebody's kind of severely self-induced vomiting multiple times a day and for long periods, it puts a lot of pressure on that. Um, and in really severe cases, it can either like tear or rupture, um, which is really, really dangerous. Um, and then on a kind of a lesser extent, because you're, you're almost kind of counteracting the sphincters along that, I guess, along that esophagus that keep your food going down the right mm. way, because you're constantly kind of um, jeopardizing that. It means that you're more likely to suffer from kind of acid reflux and heartburn wow. because your body gets used to things coming up the wrong way. Um, and then another thing in terms of, and this can be helpful for people in terms of keeping an eye on people they might be worried about, um, but it's something called like Russell sign. Um, so that, that might be on somebody's knuckles if they're um, engaging in self-induced vomiting. So that's, that's kind of a sign to look out for if you're worried about somebody as well. Um, they're the main things with self-induced vomiting I can think of. The, the Russell sign, is that like the redness, like the rawness? Yeah, it's like the rawness on the knuckles um, and, and it ends up being like a, it goes from being red to being more of like a scar, I guess. Okay. Um, if it's kind of repeatedly being like rubbed against. Okay, brilliant. Well, I think that would be really useful, like you say, if, if somebody is listening and they're concerned about somebody. Um, and I think that's that's really um, not made me happy in the slightest, but I think the fact that there's the awareness in dentists um, that that's sort of been passed on, I think is fantastic and really shows like the kind of awareness that we are beginning to get for eating disorders. So I'm um, not pleased, obviously, but sort of pleased to hear that that awareness is there. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Um, okay, so then what about laxative and diuretic abuse? And then I guess diet pills you mentioned earlier as well, if if they're kind of similar. Yeah. Um, so laxatives will, again, was that me? Sorry. There will be um, electrolyte disturbances. Um, with laxative use and that will um, also be a result of dehydration so again you'll be losing a lot of fluid um, if you're abusing laxatives um, over a long period of time laxative use can cause quite severe damage to your kidneys um, so that will also be flagged up in terms of blood results so you'd be looking at somebody's kidney function um, to see how their kidney was functioning um, one that I really want to talk about um, because often I don't think it's spoken about enough and I've met individuals who are kind of suffering really long-term gut problems from abusing laxatives. Mm. Um, so essentially what happens is, as I kind of said, your body gets used to using the laxatives um, then they stop having the effect that they were having initially. So people then start taking more and what's happening is your body is adjusting to I guess your bowel habits being regulated by external medication. So it basically, it makes your bowel in a way very lazy um, because your bowel doesn't have to do the physical work to push food through your gut because there's something else doing it for it. So it makes your gut very kind of slow and sluggish. Um, 
which means that if you then eventually come off laxatives and that damage can be permanent, not always, but it can be permanent, um, it can lead to kind of chronic constipation because your body is just not used to moving food through your gut by itself anymore. Um, and kind of what we call delayed gut transition time. So food takes a really long time to pass through. And when, when food is in your digestive system, it's your body is absorbing water from it. So the longer it's within your digestive tract, the more water is going to be absorbed, which means that you're more likely to be severely constipated. Mm. Um, And so that's, and with somebody who has an eating disorder, you then experience a kind of a lot of like bloating and discomfort when you eat, which then makes eating really difficult um, and uncomfortable, really hard to make sure you're eating enough. Um, So yeah, that, that I think is one of the main things I wanted to talk about, particularly with laxative use. Um, because sadly I have met some individuals who are really suffering um, kind of once they've gone through all the hard work of kind of managing their behaviours and reducing them, they're kind of left with it, with these really awful symptoms. Mm. Um, Diuretics, similarly kind of, again, your your body's getting used to using diuretics and trying to keep some kind of fluid balance, even though you're you're taking these um, tablets. So people do experience kind of water retention because your body is trying to hold on to fluid um so you can end up with water retention kind of low blood pressure um again dehydration obviously um dizziness and kind of fainting and feeling weak um so they're all symptoms of kind of diuretic abuse as well i from what you were just saying about the kind of bloating and stuff experienced with laxatives i can imagine that that would have quite a large psychological impact as well yeah, it's, it's a really, really difficult one. Um, and, and I mean, it's often a symptom that comes up in, in kind of lots of eating disorders. Um, it comes up in kind of anorexia nervosa as well. Um, but psychologically, really, really difficult because because you almost have to, I mean, you have to change, sometimes you might need to change somebody's eating habits. So if it's kind of a long-term chronic condition, you might have to be thinking about having kind of small and more frequent meals and um, to make sure that somebody can can eat enough in one sitting um often if it's kind of not chronic and it's a result of kind of engaging in behaviors or an anorexia nervosa it's a just a, a consequence of restricting i'm quite clear that we need to push through super uncomfortable we need to try and manage because the only way to get on top of it and for it to reduce is to i to eat enough and restore weight um, but again it depends on the individual so for somebody who's kind of suffering from long-term laxative abuse you might be looking at actually changing what their meals look like in terms of kind of more frequent smaller smaller volumes yeah wow and and, and what would someone do kind of you know you were saying about the kind of bloating and I guess the long-term effects with like that gut transit time so is that something that would be permanent or would there be things that you could do to kind of get that back um so sometimes I mean there, there are cases where it would be permanent the main thing about if it's not permanent the main thing about kind of speeding up your gut transit time again would be obviously coming off the laxatives um gradually under medical advice but also eating enough because if your body gets used to eating food properly again, mm. um, it's essentially like the way I describe it is the gut is basically like a massive muscle. So if somebody broke their leg and was bed bound for a year, they would experience kind of muscle wastage in their leg. 
and they'd have to rebuild it up again. Okay. Um, if you're engaging eating disorder behaviors, whether that's restricting kind of laxative use, again, your, your muscle or your gut is just not being used. So you need to kind of build it up again. Um, and a way to do that is, is by eating regularly. Um, but the, the main things that I'd be saying to somebody is please, please don't cut any foods out of your diet at this point. Um, I've met so many people who have speak, spoken to, um, you know, other um, individuals who have maybe advised like cutting out gluten or lap, like lactose, um, lots of different things. Um, it's highly, highly, highly unlikely that any of these symptoms are being caused by anything other than your eating disorder mm. um, or any specific food. So that's my key thing that I always talk about. And um, when it comes to particularly gastro symptoms, because I see that a lot. I think it's super common. I've met a lot of people, especially things like milk. Um, you know, I think people will be like, oh, I must have a lactose allergy. So therefore I need to cut it out. And it's, I think, really damaging, especially during that period of recovery where you've, you might have gone from a really restrictive diet. And it's almost, I always think it's almost like just leaving a little finger in the eating disorder because you're, you're still, you know, you're still restricting something. And it might be that you genuinely think that you have that, but actually just often I think it's more of sort of an eating disorder twisting it as, you know, we can still kind of have that. We can hold on to that if we really want to. Yeah, definitely. And even if you think about kind of going out to a restaurant, um, it, it kind of leaves like an option of, oh, you know, I've got to ask for kind of specifics to this meal or I've got to ask them to take this out or I might have to ask them to actually just make a different meal because there's nothing suitable. So it really allows in a very kind of socially norm, normal way, really allows the eating disorder to, to kind of still have its, yeah, have its grasp on somebody a bit. Yeah. And I think that is, you've knocked the nail on the head. It's socially norm now to have, you know, be vegan, be vegetarian, have different allergies and ask for that. So I think a few years ago, if you'd have gone to a restaurant and been like, can you make me this meal? And, you know, I want it vegan, no, no, you know, no gluten, blah, blah, blah. they have been like, oh, that's not possible. Whereas now it's, you know, it maybe is yeah. more possible. Um, so I guess that's even more challenging for individuals in recovery to actually be honest with themselves and say, I you know I need to kind of just let myself do this and work out what what is what is actually right um in terms of binging what are the medical and physical consequences um yeah so binging again you are probably going to experience things like acid reflux and heartburn um bloating abdominal pain nausea kind of after binging episodes um and then in terms of I mean it it really depends um on kind of how often somebody's engaging the behavior and um but it might be things like high blood pressure um, or high cholesterol um sleep disturbances um sometimes people have specific nutritional deficiencies and that might be because they lean towards um specific types of foods when they're binging Mm -hmm. um and then if they're restricting kind of around that then they may not actually be having a, a variety of different foods um so they're the main things I can think of with binging. Um, but yeah, it, it really does depend on the individual. It's quite varied, I would say. I guess it probably depends as well whether people are binging and purging or binging on its own. I guess that would have um, some differences. And then the last one um, that we've discussed today was I just wanted to um, think a bit about the medical and physical consequences associated with excessive exercise. 
Yeah, I love talking about this actually. Um, <laughs> I have to get you back to another podcast. <laughs> um, so yeah, with excessive exercise, um, so hormonal imbalances is something that would be seen in somebody who is excessively exercising and like, and essentially like not eating enough to maintain that level of exercise. Um, so that might be kind of reproductive hormones. So um, increased cortisol, like stress hormones as well. Um, bone density loss is a huge one. Um, and that, it, that happens in both males and females. I think sometimes there's information out there which seems to imply that it only happens to females because they're not having, they might not be menstruating, but it's both, both males and females. Um, in terms of amenorrhea, which is a lack of menstruation. So that is tightly linked to bone density. Um, basically, if you're not having periods, it means that your estrogen levels are too low um, to have a period. Estrogen basically blocks the breakdown of bone. So if you don't have enough estrogen, your bone is ends up being reabsorbed at a faster rate than it's made. This is particularly important if you're in your like teenage years. We basically reach our peak bone density when we're like in our early 20s. So basically up until then, we've got all the time we kind of have to make our bones as strong as possible. And after that, they basically decline naturally, which is mildly depressing thought. Um, so yeah. And so if you're not having periods and your bone is breaking down faster at that time, you're obviously not going to reach the peak bone density that you should at the age of like 25 or whatever. Um, so that can lead to osteopenia or osteoporosis, which is essentially kind of brittle bones. Um, so that's a key one with excessive exercise. Um, often with osteoporosis, the advice is like weight bearing exercise. Um, and I always say to people, because often someone with an eating disorder will latch onto that and be like, I need to do weight bearing exercise. If, you're, if you have an eating disorder, your weight's being impacted by how much you're exercising, then any benefit of weight-bearing exercise will be completely kind of lost. Um, so more importantly, to think about what you're eating um, and your weight and reducing the exercise. Um, and then generally kind of risk of injury will be increased, um, fatigue and exhaustion, difficulty sleeping, um, and an inability to recover and perform at the same level. That's particularly if you're kind of, and I guess an amateur athlete or professional athlete. Um, and that's often the first thing, sadly, that's kind of picked up on because people are very focused on results and performance. And mm. um, often they're, they're not kind of performing at the standard that they usually are or not improving at the rate that they're expected. And that's often actually picked up on first um, oh. as opposed to kind of the other symptoms. I have a question um, and I guess it kind of relates to what you were just saying. Um, I kind of want to ask it for, I guess, if people are listening, I'll just ask it. Um, <laughs> but I've heard people say before that kind of in the depth of an eating disorder, excessive exercise, almost this is for people that are like now recovered. Looking back, they almost are like, wow, how did, not wow, but how did I do that? Because I wasn't eating a lot, but I was excessively exercising and then when they then start kind of recovery and they're doing the meal plan and stuff, that level of exercise is then almost not possible. And I think sometimes people think, oh, it's, you know, I've, I've given up or, um, you know, I've not got the 
willpower or whatever word you want to say which obviously an eating disorder is not about willpower um is there like science behind that or is it just what happens yeah there is i i don't know the specifics of it but there's definitely research on how individuals with eating disorders are able to function and and i guess kind of physically exert themselves to the extent that they do um when they're eating so little um and it, i mean when you do think about it, i can understand why individuals reflect and think that because it it is mind-blowing mm. sometimes um what individuals are able to i guess their eating disorder are able to force themselves to do um but there is definitely research as to i guess almost to how individuals are able to override the the normal signals that we get from our brains about we need to stop i'm exhausted yeah. um I guess kind of in a non-scientific point it's almost like once you start engaging in recovery and treatment it gives you a bit of time to take a step back I guess you know when you've just been like on a much much less scale but if you've just been running around all day and you don't realize how exhausted you are but you're just constantly going and going and going I kind of picture it a little bit like that and you never give yourself a chance to stop because it's not even considered an option Mm. and then as soon as you kind of have permission to stop you're like wow I am absolutely yeah. exhausted. Um, but there is kind of more science around it um, in terms of actual like science as to what's going on. Yeah, I think that is interesting to kind of think about though, especially like that almost permission. I guess I think a lot of people when they then go into treatment, you know, sometimes it's kind of they hand over the baton to the dietitian or the therapist or whatever of, okay, just for this period whilst I'm getting it better, I'm just going to, put it in your hands and I guess for somebody else to say to you it's okay you can rest now you know not everybody has an eating sort of voice but I guess if that's if the eating sort of voice is the only thing you ever hear of you've got to keep going and then finally someone comes in and says you can stop I can imagine you know that would be that sense of relief and actually oh maybe I can just stop now rather than keep doing these behaviors yeah. what we've been wanting to ask so thank you so much um I think that has been like a whistle-stop tour it's been brilliant I think I've learned so much um I do have a couple of questions from the listeners um so the first one was um and I think we kind of touched on this earlier a little bit um but somebody's asked um that their um binge eating is often triggered by things like boredom and anger and stuff like that um and they've asked if you have any tips for almost filling that void of I guess you know using binging as that coping mechanism to fill that void of boredom or for um coping with that anger yeah I think in terms of like labeling the emotions that would always be my first thing so let actually label the emotions that you're feeling so really good that that person's kind of identified those um I guess what I'd be thinking of particularly with the anger I would I would be advising somebody to be working through that with a therapist mm-hmm. um because it's quite a complex emotion and it can be lots of different things that are triggering it and really unhelpful for somebody to just sit here and be like oh you just need to try and not be so angry like it's just it's just not particularly helpful mm-hmm. um so I think being able to work on why or f- the why behind why you feel angry is really important um in terms of boredom I think it sounds really kind of basic but distraction techniques are super, super helpful. Mm. I most 
people that I work with, I will get them to write out a list of activities or things that they can do to engage themselves. I'm quite, um, watching TV and reading or listening to music, I try and steer clear of, because um, they're very passive activities. Mm. Um, you can sit in front of the TV and not engage with it at all. So I'm quite, um, I usually recommend things that involve kind of two or more of your senses. So something that keeps your hands occupied can be quite helpful. Um, so some people might be like knitting or sewing or crocheting, coloring, um, those kinds of things, or something that really inquires your brain to like function. So like Sudokus or crosswords mm-hmm. um, can be quite helpful. Um, but what I would probably start with is actually writing out for you a list of meaningful activities. Um, there might be something that you've been putting off for ages because you feel like you just don't have time to do it. Um, that is really like actually quite important to you. And um, so for like young people, it might be kind of like looking into universities if they've been putting off those kinds of like activities. Mm-hmm. Um, and planning after meals can be quite helpful so that you know, okay, after lunch, I'm going to do this for an hour or after dinner, I'm going to do this for an hour. Yeah, I think that's such a good idea and really good what you said about sort of those passive activities, because I know um, for, for me personally, if I'm having a day where I feel a bit anxious or whatever, reading is the worst thing to do because my brain just, my br- I'm like looking at the words and my brain doesn't take a single one of them in and I've read 10 pages and I've got no idea what's going on. But Sudoku and crochet, they're my two things. They're my two mm-hmm. go-tos. So yeah, I'm glad you mentioned mentioned those. Um, and then the other question, um, which I think we also slightly touched on earlier, but not this specifically, was when you're working with a client and sort of doing a meal plan, at what stage, if ever, would you start to introduce trigger foods? I think it, this is going to be my saying of the podcast, is it does depend on the individual. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and most people that I work with will have a sense themselves and know when they feel ready um so you know we might start with not having you know if somebody's trigger food is biscuits we will we will start with just not having packets of biscuits in the in the home so we might think if we're looking at somebody's meal plan we'll be thinking about what can we buy like an individual packet so we don't have like multi multi packs of things um most people that i've worked with will have a sense of you know shall we I feel like I'm ready to try that now they may have accidentally been in an environment where those foods were available and not thought about it and that might have been assigned to them well actually maybe I can try this Mm. at home um but really it did we'd be looking at having kind of a period of time where somebody hasn't engaged in binging the urges are kind of significantly reduced and that they've got all their kind of like safety plans um, around what to do if they do have urges and that they feel really confident around them. Um, they're like the key things I'd be thinking about in terms of, but really it, it very, very, very rarely comes from me. It's the individual kind of taking accountability and feeling like I'm ready to do this. It's never really about me saying, I think we should try this. Yeah, brilliant. I think one thing that's really stood out talking to you today which I love is that it's not just a one-size-fits-all it's not a kind of you know tick box scenario of okay we're at a month now so we're gonna do this I think that you've really demonstrated how individualized the care needs to be and like you know working with a therapist and looking at what 
what are the triggers and what are the difficult emotions that bring up these things so I think that's been really lovely to hear so thank you very much thanks Anna <laughs> If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.